chapter 19 this evening. If you're with us here tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have some Bibles and just get their attention by waving to them and they'll get one in your hands and you can follow along with us for the couple chapters that we'll cover uh, this evening. Just want to let you know, uh, just on a distraction uh, kind of focus on things, we're having a little bit of trouble with our screens and our camera, so um, if in the course of the Bible study the camera goes off over here somewhere, you'll know what's happening, and uh, if it goes off altogether, you'll know what's happening so that it's not a distraction uh, to you. Our just razor-sharp steel trap-like minds refusing to be distracted by uh, technology. And so just be aware of that. In chapter 19, as we uh, come to that in, in the Second uh, Kings, we remember that the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken captive because of their sin by the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians are were the world-ruling empire at that time. They were dominating the Middle East and... Uh, expanding their territory and their empire every opportunity they got. And it got into the minds of a king by the name of Sennacherib, who was ruling Assyria at that time, to then attack uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And at that time, there was where we are right now, there is a king over Judah by the name of Hezekiah. Up to this time, he is the greatest and the most godly king that Israel or Judah ever had other than David himself. He might be surpassed by a grandson that was going to follow a man by the name of Josiah, who we'll be reading about in a couple of weeks. But he is a great, great and godly king. Sennacherib has entered into the land of Judah and he has been successful in his uh, military kind of attack and foray. He has overthrown several of Judah's fortified cities, which were intended to be some kind of a buffer against attack upon the capital city of Jerusalem. All of them have fallen now to Sennacherib in Assyria and Assyria now is at the gates of Jerusalem. Sennacherib sends a group of three officials, one that we're most familiar with from last week, a man by, with the title of Rebeksha, and he comes with a message from Sennacherib, uh, basically trying to intimidate. Uh, they're very much masters of kind of propaganda in, in mental warfare and this kind of thing. And so they tried to get uh, dispirit the children of Israel from withstanding this uh, the greatest military in the world at the time, the Assyrian military, and to come to their senses, surrender to Assyria. They would then be displaced in another part of the Assyrian Empire, but they would not die. In the course of delivering this message from Sennacherib, Rebeksha, he as he delivers it, he not only... Uh, demeans uh, King Hezekiah, but he demeans um, and makes fun of and minimizes his relationship with God and his faith in God. And then he goes even further than that, and he begins to demean the God of Israel. He begins to blaspheme the Lord. And he's going to find out that God is a listener to what people are saying about him, and especially this kind of thing. And he knows how to defend himself, even as he doesn't call on us to defend him, but he knows how to defend himself. And this brings us now to where we are. The message of this threatening message from Sennacherib has been delivered to 
uh, Hezekiah's envoy of three men that went out to meet him. They then came in the final verse of chapter 18, deliver the message to Hezekiah. When they heard the message, they tore their clothes. They were mourning over it, were cooked. You know, and so now they deliver the message to Hezekiah in chapter 19, verse 1. And when he heard it, the impact that it had on him was he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth. So this message went straight to his heart. It tore his heart in two. This is a very, very considerable, uh, gigantic trial that he finds himself in the middle of. And, and again, you've got um, lives hanging the balance. So... What decision he's going to make, women, children, families, all. If he if he stands against Sennacherib and Sennacherib destroys everybody in the city. But if he if he surrenders, is what does that how does that reflect upon God and what will then happen to those people? I mean, the buck stops here with this guy and he's making a decision that is going to affect many, many lives and affect the history of the nation of, of Israel here. And so he's in a real tough place. He hears this news, the greatest military. Imagine somebody comes up against Modesto. They've got the greatest military in the world, and you've got what? You know, I mean, it's a bad place to be in. So it hits his heart. His heart is, is, is really smitten by this threat. So he tears his clothes as an outward expression of the fact that this really troubled his heart. And on top of that, he covered himself with sackcloth, which was what you did when everybody was either dead or going to die. So he, in other words, he realized this is very, very serious, the situation that we're in. Now, you say, well, boy, do you have to spend so much time making such a big deal out of it and laying the context? In, in fact, I do. I don't always need to. Sometimes I do it just to bother you. But, uh, but I'm, tonight, I'm, I never really do that either. But I do that if I think it's important. And if it's important to me, it should be important to you. So this is how we operate around here. But anyway, on this thing, I say all of that to say this, that it's important to know that because... Hezekiah's actions in response to this threat now lays out an example to us when we face those same kind of gigantic, this is the end kind of circumstances in our life. And in this fallen world, we're going to face that kind of thing. And more so as it relates to God's people. Any person, any man, woman, child, young person, anyone that desires to be great for God, to do something to exalt him and, and make his glory known in the world, you're going to have enemies in this world. That's just the way that it is. We're just going to get attacked over that, that issue. And the enemy, of course, that we face, you look at this Assyrian army, and it pales in comparison to our enemy, who is the devil with all of the resources that he has, fallen angels without number. I mean, it's really something. And so what do we do when we get attacked in this way? And here is wonderful instruction and illustration of now how to handle this kind of trial. What did he do? He tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth. And then notice he went into the house of the Lord. He got to church. He actually, even more important, he drew near to God. He drew, he drew close to God. There are some people, and it's the biggest mistake you can make when you face a, a tri any trial, but a trial like this. There are many people, when they face this trial, they all of a sudden begin to doubt God. They begin to doubt His power. They begin to doubt His wisdom. They begin to doubt His love in their life. 
And so what they do then is they begin to distance themselves from God. This, this is going to have a very, very happy ending simply because Hezekiah does not abandon his relationship with God and his history with God because he ran into some significant trouble in this world. There is a funny thing, and I've noticed it through the years. I don't say it's true of all Christians or even most Christians, but it's true of a lot of Christians. Where we have this idea that because we are Christians, we are not going to have trouble in this world. This world is a fallen place. It rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. And trouble comes to the just and trouble comes to the unjust. And more trouble comes to the just in the fallenness of this world. Because the unjust don't have to fight the devil on top of everything else the way that we do. So one of the biggest things that we fight is this expectation that once I come to know the Lord, that I'm not going to have any more problems. My life is never going to be in jeopardy, that there's there's never going to be, you know, great crises in my life. There there will be. Jesus himself spoke and he said to us, he said, in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Don't throw off the relationship. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let me have a crack at what it is that you're in the middle of, and let's see how this thing plays out. But we don't abandon our faith when we find ourselves in this kind of a crisis. Now, it's an easy thing to be sitting here. Most of us in the room tonight, where we sit here and we look at that, and we're dealing with it hypothetically. We are not in that place in life at the moment. Maybe we have been, maybe we never have been, but we will be in the future. But there are others that are in this place, exactly this place tonight, in the importance of realizing. These kind of times are times to draw even closer to God and go even deeper into our relationship with the Lord. And that's what Hezekiah does. The Bible says that if we draw nigh to God, he will always draw nigh to us. That's a wonderful thing. It's one of the things I pray uh, on the Sunday morning and Sunday night services. I know all of you have come here tonight because you are drawing nigh to God. That's the reason that you're here. And God always He makes that promise that he will then draw nigh to us when we do that. And so here he is in the midst of this. He draws close to the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and elders of the priests. And he covered, uh, elder, elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth. And they were sent to Isaiah the prophet, who has been a prophet among the children of Israel for about 40 years at this point in time. They've been around for a long time. So he sends them to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to Isaiah, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble. I mean, it's trouble for Israel and rebuke. This guy has come and he's rebuked our faith in God. And remember, the Rebecca did that. And it's a day of blasphemy. This man has come and he has blasphemed our God. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. He likened the condition of Judah at this time, their vulnerability in the situation before this great military of a woman being in labor. She's been in labor for long hours. She has just given all of her strength to bring the baby to the point that the baby is in the birth canal and she literally does not have one more ounce of strength to push that baby out into life. In other words, 
The baby's life is in jeopardy. And he is saying that Judah's very life and existence is in jeopardy because of this threat that's been brought uh, against them. And so he kind of informs him uh, of the situation. And then he calls upon him to for prayer and says, it may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the uh, Rebekshuk. Uh, whom the Lord, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. In other words, I can't tell you everything the guy said. God heard it. You pray about this and he'll know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's a great. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And so. He then sends that messenger to Isaiah, informs him of the situation, and begins to ask for prayer. It's interesting to me. You put yourself in Hezekiah's place. What would you do when you get that message? I mean, the, all right, I want you to go over to this general and go over to this general over here, and I want to shore up this and make sure that we've got enough arrows. And, and that's not what he does. This is the kind of man that he is, this kind of relationship. That he has with God. He realizes God has been insulted in this. God is our defense. We're being obedient to the Lord. We've taken out all of this idolatry out of the land. We're on the right side of his promises. We're walking obediently with him. We are God's problem. And I think that's wonderful to realize. I am God's problem. He saved me. He let me get saved. He adopted me into the family. He's made me his possession. I'm God's problem. And as we just simply walk with the Lord and we're on the right side of the promises, we can go to the Lord and, and seek in, in prayer with that kind of a confidence. And so he the first thing he does is he starts to get the prayer team going and he gets Isaiah, the prophet, engaged in prayer. I think it is so important in a crisis of this kind of magnitude to turn to other people for prayer during uh, these kind of situations and to turn to people who are we know to be deeply spiritual people with uh, a uh, ongoing prayer life. The Bible says that there are burdens in the Christian life that we are to carry on our own. They're just between us and God and that we will carry them on our own. The trial will begin alone. It will uh, occur just between us and God. Nobody else will be involved in it. Uh, our own character and what is supposed to be happening in this trial is just between us and God. But the Bible says also that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill uh, the law of Christ. And so there are burdens and trials that come into our life as Christians we are not meant to bear alone. I, w- I wonder that now that may be for some of us in our Christian walk here tonight the first time you heard that. The first time that you are realizing that there are trials that come into your life that you cannot carry on your own. But other Christians are to be engaged in intercession and helping you through that trial, that it's going to occur that way. Some of you know because you've heard me say it uh, to you privately through the years where somebody will come up maybe after a service or any time and say, this is what's going on in my life. And they lay out this gigantic thing. And I mean, you just look at it and you go, how in the world? This is just huge. The trial that they're in the middle of. And we'll talk about this and that in the Bible and this. And it says here and these kind of things. And then I will almost always ask, I'll say, do you have two or three friends that you know love you 
and are deeply spiritual people and you know they have a living, ongoing prayer life, that you can inform of this situation and get them to engage in prayer for you on a daily basis and through the day as God brings you to their remembrance as you are in this trial. Yes, I think I know one or two or three or four or I know 20 sometimes people can say, great, get a few of those and get them praying for you every single day related to this situation because this is a bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ kind of of a trial. And it's so critical to do that. I like James in this vein. He said, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And he said, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I don't know that there's any... The single greatest... Comfort, and I've tried. I'm, I'm seeing whether I should qualify that. If I should qualify it, I'm not going to because I can't think of anything greater. The single greatest comfort I think in any trial that we find ourselves in as Christians is to know that God knows what's going on in our life, and that Jesus is interceding for us, and that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. How wonderful to know that God is praying for us in any situation that we're in. And then I think only second to that is to realize that as we face what we face day in and day out, to realize there are people praying for me. I am on their prayer list. They pray for me in the morning and they pray for me in the evening. And they are the kind of people who know what it is to be interrupted in the course of the day and for the Holy Spirit to speak to them and say, pray for so-and-so right now in this situation. And they engage in that intercession. And it's one of the great experiences that of our lives and one of the great needs in our lives when we find ourselves in that kind of of a trial. And so the bringing in of people, and that's what Hezekiah does. He looks and says, all right, this is uh, all hands on deck spiritually, and I want to everyone to be engaged in prayer. Let's get uh, Isaiah uh, engaged in prayer on this situation. We need a miracle and uh, a demonstration of God's power, or we're going to cease to exist as a kingdom here uh, under the under this uh, threat. And then uh, the Isaiah's response uh, to uh, Hezekiah is beautiful here. He said to them, here is the Lord speaking in answer to this prayer and this drawing close to the Lord. Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. Now you tell me how valuable it is in that kind of a trial. To have either God by a verse from the scriptures or through a supernatural peace that he gives us. Or somebody writes us a card with a word of wisdom or word of knowledge. And we read it. It says, do not be afraid. Fear not. Some verse of the Bible that dealing and we, we read it and God's spirit just bear witness to that. And we realize that is God almighty speaking to me in this situation. I'll tell you, it's more valuable than California real estate. I mean, it's it's priceless. So we need to hear that uh, from the Lord. Now, notice the Lord. He he took these uh, threats that this king had made personally, and he said, don't be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. He was listening to all of it. He said, don't worry about 
don't worry about your situation. The greater thing has been the blasphemy of me. And then he says, surely I, God speaking, great to circle that I, surely I will send the spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So God gives him a promise related to uh, his situation. It's interesting that this messenger of Sennacherib comes with this message, and it's Sennacherib, I will, I will, I will, I will. He lays this whole thing out. And, you know, Isaiah's eyes are like this big because of all of those I wills and all. And God says, all right, I know how to combat that. I'll give you two wills. Two I wills of Jehovah, that trumps a hundred I wills of Sennacherib. So he gives him a promise here. You've, li- you've listened to all this guy's threats, all of his talkings, all of his everything. He's run you up one side and down the other, telling you all about the things that he's going to do. And he knows that the solution for us to that is to just find out how does God view this thing and what is God going to do in it? So God says, all right, I come against all his I wills, and here's how I'm going to deal with this situation. I'm going to send a spirit upon him, the big guy that thinks he's in charge of the whole universe. I'm going to send a spirit upon him. He's going to hear a rumor, and he's going to act upon that rumor. He's going to return to his, his own land of Assyria, and then I'm going to cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. In other words, he's going to die, die a violent uh, death there. And so here is the Lord. He's going to uh, personally show Sennacherib, who's just been mouthing off, that God has, he's not this localized deity around Jerusalem. He has authority to do whatever he wants. He's going to uh, have Sennacherib uh, executed in his own land. Uh, in the stronghold of his own God. In other words, God is sovereign. He's bigger than all of the nations of the world. I love these songs that we sang this morning in worship. And then again tonight, talking about how the almightiness of our God. And he's over all. He reigns over all. And he really does. And so this is the word that uh, is, is given to uh, Hezekiah and how valuable it would have been to him to receive that from the Lord. And so we see why it's so important to seek the Lord in prayer for his mind in the middle of a crisis. And uh, no need to do all the things that we would normally start to do, mobilize this and get this meeting over here and organize all of these people and all of this kind of thing. And you think about what the natural reaction would be to this. All he gets is just one word from the Lord, and he realizes, all right, hey, everybody, don't put the, put the arrows away, put the spears away, put relax, don't prepare for the siege, don't have to worry about water or anything like that. God gave us a promise. And now all we need to do is just wait and watch what the Lord does as he keeps uh, his word. Hezekiah, he didn't need to know any of the specifics that more than what God had given him here. All he needed was a word from God that everything was under control. And then once we receive that word from the Lord, again, from a verse in the Bible or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or however God might speak that to us, then we have God's perspective on the situation. And once we have God's perspective on the situation, now we can rest in that because now we just wait this out to watch how his promises uh, come to pass. Now, the fulfillment of it, verse eight, was then the rab- uh, 
Rev Shek, uh, okay, I forgot it one, right once tonight. He returned and he found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning uh, Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, look, he has come out to make war with you. And so he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. I mean, this guy's just the knife of him. I mean, he's really got some chutzpah here, this guy. So don't let the Lord your God in whom you trust deceive you again, blaspheming the Lord, saying Jerusalem shall not be given into the hands of Assyria. So what happens is this messenger, he comes back to tell Sennacherib, hey, I delivered the message. He finds out Sennacherib has moved his whole camp because he got a rumor that the king of Ethiopia was coming up from the south to attack him. So he began to make a move on that. And then the Rabbeksha, he had to take and move himself to follow the king. And he realizes, oh, no, Hezekiah is going to think that his God did this in response to prayer. And so he sends back this message to try and undermine his faith in God. Whenever the physical circumstances of our life change in response to prayer, we can know that God was at work in the situation. And so he, he looks at it and says, oh, no, they're going to start to believe that God has delivered them from the mighty hand of Assyria. And he tries to mock or scorn their faith uh, one more time. And he says, look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all of the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be uh, delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezeph. And the peoples of Eden who were at uh, Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharim, Hena and uh, Iva? And so he says, listen, Assyria has conquered all of these cities, all of their gods as a result. What makes you think you're any different? My God. <laughs> All of these other gods that they were worshiping were the figments of their imagination. They come up in their own mind. And, of course, the deities of the ancient world were basically the deification of the flesh, the deification of the carnal mind, the lusts of the flesh. And, and so you look at in the, in the ancient world, you look at what they would worship and what man came up to worship. And you'd say, all right, could you list like what are the top seven lusts of men? Uh-huh, and then show me the gods. And they've made an idol out of all of them to legitimize sinful behavior. And so these were just images that they made with their own hands and made up in their minds. And the Lord is the true and the living God. <clears throat> And I love reminding myself and I love reminding you of the fact that we are different in this world. We are not like everybody else in this world. We don't need, need to be a victim to the same things or victim to the same circumstances or to look at circumstances the way that everybody else does in the feebleness of the gods that they worship. I love knowing that I am different in this world, not because I'm intrinsically different from any other person, but because my God makes me different. 
My God has made promises for me and for you, and he stands behind those promises because he has the ability to do that. So this guy scorns the uniqueness, and we find ourselves, even as Christians, in the middle of national problems and international problems, and we're prone to worry like the people who worship every other God in the world, and there's no need to because the God that we worship is a different God, and the God that we worship makes us a different people. And so the promises that we have are infinitely superior than any of the other promises that these idols give to other people. And more than the promises is the God who is able to stand behind those promises. We are different than everyone else in the world. And it's important to know that because the Bible says that as the return of the Lord draws near, that things are going to get more and more, how we shall we say, difficult in the world. And people's hearts are going to fail them for fear in this world. And if we don't realize that is them and this is us, then we're going to live a life dominated by the same fear. Our God reigns, just like we sang tonight. And he reigns above Everything that's going on in this world above every headline you read. Our God reigns above every king, every dictator, every politician, every circumstance. You look above all of those things and our God reigns above all of them. And because of that, we're a different people in this world. And so here's the second threat that is made. And so Hezekiah received the letter and uh, from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And Hezekiah, then his response was he went into the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. Would you just allow me a moment here in verse 14, because we have come upon one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I just want to enjoy it with you. It's one of the greatest pictures to me in the Bible. Here he gets this letter all full of threats and the scorning of him and the scorning of his God and all these things. And he just takes it in prayer before God for him. That was the temple for us. It's anywhere. And he lays the whole thing out before the Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm yours and this is yours. And he gave it to the Lord. Just laid the thing out. Lord. This is what they're saying about me. This is what they want to do to us. This is what they're saying about you, Lord. And you ought to know that. And it's not my problem. I can't carry it. I can't fix it. And so I lay it out before you. And the idea is of transferring it over to the Lord. Again, we think into the New Testament. Where the Bible says, casting all of our cares, First Peter chapter 5, casting all of our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. And that's what's happening here right in this scene. So many things that we get, you know, and the first thing, get on the phone and get in, in, in Twitter and Tweeter and, in, in, get in, and dispatch here and do and all. And, and he just takes it and he just says, no, nope, I'm going to get alone with God. And, and I'm going to lay this out in, in front uh, of the Lord and, 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 and hand it uh, over to him. 
And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And so he continued now in prayer and he said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, where the cherubim in heaven, the third heaven, the highest place in the universe, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And so he goes into that place, lays the letter out before the Lord, and then he begins to pray to the Lord. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon the Lord. So where there is prayerlessness in our life, it's an indication that we view ourselves quite independent of God. We're able to handle our own problems, our own life, etc., etc., etc. A person that has established a life of instant prayer related to these kind of situations is a person who's revealing the fact that they are living a life of dependence upon the Lord. And so when we in always when we pray, not only in these circumstances, but certainly in these circumstances, always when we pray, we are honoring God. We are honoring him with our faith. You take you take any father, mother, the same thing. And, and if you're not a father or mother, you can easily relate to it. You take any father in the world who has a child come and bring a great need to their father. It blesses that father's heart that a child is putting their trust and their dependence in that father. And that father will do on the side of righteousness everything within his power and resources to bring that to come to pass as long as it's a healthy and a good thing for the child. How much more our father who is is in heaven related to these things. And so it honors him. His prayer is an interesting one, and it is one of the great model prayers uh, in all of the Bible. And he begins it there in verse 15 with a reminder of the greatness of the God that he is bringing his uh, prayer, uh, his need to. And he, he he's not informing God. God, by the way, did you know that you're the creator of the heavens? <laughs> he needs to be reminded of that. And so he just begins to talk about his God before he ever gets to the need that he's going to lift up in order for him to have regain perspective against these threats, he's got to see God and the power of God, the authority of, of God, the love of God, the desire of God to be involved in his life as greater than the threat of the problem that he's taking to God. And so he takes and he begins to worship the Lord for how big he is, how great he is, until he is in a place that he's no longer seeing his God in the light of the circumstances, but he's seeing the circumstances in the light of his God. That's why sometimes in a devotional life, people will sometimes ask and say, well, in our morning devotional time with the Lord, should it be 30 minutes? Should it be an hour? Should it be 16 hours like the church fathers that lived in the desert? Or, you know, you read these books and you think, wow, I guess I can commit that kind of a way. So people got all these ideas of how long a devotional life needs to be. And I'm, and I'm not going to try and answer that question. But, but it does need to be long enough that this happens in our life, in our prayers to where whatever circumstances we're facing before we begin that day, that we have been quiet enough before the Lord that when we walk out that door, 
whether it's out that door into the rest of the house or out that door out into the world, that we are seeing our circumstances in the light of God, who he is, his power, his greatness, and not the other way around. And if that takes a few minutes for that to occur, then that's great. If that takes an hour and a half, then that's what it needs that day. It may not need to be that every day, but on that day, it needs to be that way. And so it's all dictated by the circumstances that we're involved in. And so Hezekiah took, and here's these threats. He knew that there was a God in the universe that was greater than the God of of Assyria. And so he takes and he begins to pray about the greatness of his God. If we just begin prayer and we say, Lord, listen, there's this thing and these people are trying to kill me over here and then this thing over here and then I owe this thing over here and then I've got this crisis at work here and this deadline and all. And we don't take time to remember that the God that we're casting these cares on is greater than any of these problems. We will we will pray those things. We will say the words But nothing's happened in our spirit. We will say the words, but we will get up from that chair and we will carry those problems as thoroughly as we were carrying them when we sat down in the chair. That's why Jesus, when the disciples came to him and they said, Lord, teach us uh, how to pray, just like John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. And Jesus said, after this manner, pray. Give us this day our daily bread. That's not where he started. Didn't start with the daily needs. He said, you pray after this manner. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in that prayer, just designed right in that model prayer, is time that is spent to now consider the greatness of the God. On a daily basis, the greatness of the God that I am bringing my need to. I'll tell you, I never pray that. Our Father, which art in heaven, except I just laugh at myself. Almost never, except that I laugh at myself. It just corrects so many things in my life on a daily basis. You say, how? It's like a chiropractor. How out of of whack can you get in a day? I can get out of whack a lot in a day. And to come in and then to sit down, our Father which art in heaven. Oh, that's right. And And I tell you, I just will sit there and I will glory in that with the Lord. And then I'll move on through and ultimately lift up all of these needs to him. But if I don't really know who it is that if I don't know that I can leave these things with him, I'll carry them day in and day out, day after day. And so beautiful to see this as as Hezekiah begins his prayer in in this way. And then it's kind of fascinating that he then makes the situation known to the Lord. He said, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to reproach the living God. He's been saying bad stuff about you out there. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria, the kings of Assyria, they've laid waste the nations in their lands. I mean, it's true. A lot of this boasting, it's true. And they've cast their gods 
into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. So he takes this time and he informs God of the situation. Now, whenever we spend time in prayer telling God about the situation, it's important that we realize we're not informing him of something that he doesn't already know. Sometimes you get in a prayer meeting and some people are very informative in their prayers. I say, Lord, and I was there and then he took a right hand turn. No, no, I think it was a left. It was a left hand turn. It was a right. And everybody else in the prayer meeting is, you know, but we love one another. So but I mean, they're very detail oriented related to prayer, like if like they're informing God of something that he doesn't know. We never inform him of something that he doesn't know, but we have a need to speak these things, not in order to inform him, but because we have a need to talk them through with somebody. You know, God, this is a really big deal. This thing's scary right now, what, what we're looking at. Lord, there's a lot of lives that hang in the balance on the basis of this decision that's going to come out of this. And it isn't that he needs to be informed as much as we need to just, uh, we have the need to talk it through with somebody safe. And I just, and again, I love this aspect of prayer of, and, and where you just, again, take the time. Sometimes it's uh, taking a walk. We've got these wonderful canals all over town to walk along and where they're, where they're safe. So we have to qualify that. But uh, to ju- and to just talk it and talk it and talk it and talk it over personally with the Lord and, until we have a, a, until something uh, wonderful has happened in us because we have a need to think it through. We have a need to talk it through. And he's a safe person to do that with. And so this, this wonderful aspect of prayer informing not for his good, but for our good. And then he asks specifically for what he needs God to do here. And he says, now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand. So he gets gets to the point there finally of what he's wanting to bring forward. And now in a way that he can then leave it with God. Okay, Lord, this is what we need. We need a miracle from you. We need you to save us from his hand. And here's his motive. That all of the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. And so his concern here was, Lord, I'm praying, sure, we don't want to get wiped out, any of those kind of things. And, but my prayer isn't primarily for our own survival. My prayer is, God, as badly as we may have, your people may ris- misrepresent you in this world, Your reputation is still tied up in us. And if we're defeated, it's going to be a bad reflection upon you. And so, Lord, I pray for this victory for our good, of course, but supremely for your glory. And so this was his motive behind the prayer, a concern for the glory of God. And then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Would you just underline in your Bible there in verse 20, at least in your own mind, because you have prayed to me, I have 
heard. What if he didn't pray? Sometimes people look and they say, well, what difference does prayer make? I mean, God is sovereign. He's overall and he's got this authority and he's and all. Why would he even have us engage in prayer as as, as Christians? I mean, but we know right here that this answer that God is going to bring forth comes as an answer to prayer. I don't know all the ins and outs of prayer. It's like I'm really super comfortable with mystery and a relationship with God. I believe you can take any subject in this Bible and he gives us a revelation out this far. And that's what we can know and be sure of. But then some of us who are a little bit of theological eggheads, we like to take it half a step further or ten steps further and say, well, the implications of this are this. And then we get beyond the biblical revelation and we start to think about things that we don't need to think about. And we start to ask about the effectiveness of prayer. And if God is sovereign, then why does prayer and all this kind of stuff and everything like that? And we do so, so much that we don't have any left time left to pray. But God gives us a revelation related to prayer that goes this far. And all I know, I know a few things, but one of the things I know about prayer is that when we pray, it makes a difference in the situation. I don't always know how. I don't know the degree. I don't know why. I don't know so much about prayer. But I do pray with at least that confidence in prayer, that God is hearing my prayer. And in this instant, my prayer is making a difference in that situation. Whether I can see it, whether the people involved recognize it, whether every, anything changes in a day or 48 hours, it doesn't matter to me. All I know is that that situation is different now on the basis of my intercession than it was five minutes ago. And that's the confidence that we're to have in prayer. God hears our prayers. He commands us to pray. He would never command us to do anything that was a vain and repetitious activity. Our prayers make a difference. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. I mean, these are wonderful promises that God gives to encourage a great faith in prayer a great sense of authority in our lifting up of, of needs in our own life and the, in the, the lives of other people. And so here is God responding here now to prayer. And he said, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Sennacherib here, who has laid out all of these threats. The virgin daughter of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, and refers to Jerusalem as a virgin. In other words, a virgin is someone who hasn't been violated. So he's basically saying Jerusalem is not going to be violated by Assyria. He has scorned, uh, speaking of Jerusalem, he, Jerusalem, Zion, has despised you. They have laughed you to scorn. In other words, they're going to make fun of you when you uh, walk away after all of your boasting and unable to follow it up with action. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Again, a, another uh, uh, image of, uh, imagery of, of scorn. Whom have 
have, whom have you blas- uh, reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? You thought you were blaspheming my people. You blasphemed me, and and I was listening. I'll tell you, I don't want to blaspheme the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon, I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will, I will, I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water and with the soles of my feet. I have dried up all the brooks of defense and speaking of how they just made their way through all of these other countries, defeating them. And the Lord says, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? And now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. So the Lord is essentially saying to him, The reason that you've been victorious against all of these other nations is not so that you should get lifted up in pride. You have been able to do this because I've allowed you to do that. And principally talking, as it talks about Lebanon and all, speaking about Sennacherib's or Assyria's defeat of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's basically saying to Sennacherib, you defeated my people Israel, not because you're such a virtuous people. But I allowed you to do it because of the sin of my people and to use you as a rod of chastisement in their life. And then God says, I know where you live. <laughs> Something you don't want to hear God say in a, in a, when he's in a displeased state. But I know your dwelling place. I know you're going out and you're coming in. I mean, you think uh, all these cameras all over the place and you use your charge card and you use your phone and and they can put your whole life together on the basis of all of these electronics. I hate it. I'm going to go. I'm moving to New Mexico and I'm just going to get a compound barbed wire, the whole thing, scramblers that don't let any signals through. And then I'm just going to do stuff that nobody knows. I'm just going to read my Bible and I'm just going to do great stuff and everything. But they don't know. I mean, it's real. I mean, they know everything about what we're doing just about. And it's good to be a Christian where you've got nothing to hide. You say, go ahead, know all of it. And, and then talk to me about the God that has made me somewhat different from what I used to be. And so I know your dwelling place. I know every time you go out, every, every, I know all your activities. And I also know your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, all right, enough of your I wills. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose. Ooh, that's painful. And they did that in those days. And my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way you came. I'm going to send you back home, Buster. Now, when God speaks to him about putting God saying, I'm going to put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. That was something that the Sennacherib would have understood the message of that very clearly, because when they would conquer people, they would put a chain or put a rope uh, through their mouth and they would just chain them all the way along to keep them in line and then to carry them off cap, cap 
captive to the Assyrian Empire. And all you had to do is just yank that thing to keep everybody in line. It was a lot of pain. And so basically when he said, I'm going to put this uh, uh, hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, he's basically saying, I'm going to do to you what you've done to others. And that is, I'm going to, I'm going to humble you and I'm going to break you. I'm going to defeat you. And then he has a message for Hezekiah, and he says to him, This shall be a sign to you that all this is going to come to pass. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same. Because the Assyrian Empire had come in and dominated the land, they had wiped out all of, all of the crops. They, were, they ate everything up. So everything is wiped out from the year before. Everything is wiped out for the coming year. And so God says, all right, you're just going to have to eat what's left over from what's happened there. But also in the third year, you're going to sow and reap. You're going to plant vineyards and you're going to eat the fruit of them. In other words, you guys aren't going anywhere. The Assyrians are going someplace. You're not going anywhere. And the remnant of those who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, bear fruit upward. For out of the out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God said, you know, stamp of approval. Tap, tap, no erases. This is for sure. And that's the kind of word, uh, that's the way we can read the, the volume of the book. And therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, again, all these threats, all this, everything, he shall not come into this city. In fact, he's not even going to shoot an arrow against the walls, nor come before it with a siege, nor build a siege mound against it. Now, at this point in time, it got 185,000 soldiers uh, outside the area of Jerusalem here to, to fight against them, a considerable force. And it seemed inconceivable that these people are going to leave without attacking the city or even shooting one arrow. So I mean, sometimes God's promises, you look at them and you think, come on, I mean, look, What? These guys are going to just pack up and go home. How in the world? What are you going to? How's that going to happen? Not even going to. Somebody's going to shoot an arrow just for for the sake of being there. By the way, he came by the same. He shall return and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. Here's the reason why. For I will defend this city to save it. And here is the reason for my own sake. And for my servant David's sake, for the sake of his own reputation in the whole world. So the whole world would watch this defeat of Assyria and know that now the children of Israel and the children of Judah, they're not always walking the way that they should. But I'll tell you, there's something about their God that's different from everything else that everyone else worships in the world. And so the Lord did it for his own sake and his own reputation and in doing so for the sake of people coming to know him. And then here we have the fulfillment of God's promise. And it came to pass on a certain night that an angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians one hundred and eighty five thousand men. There's one angel, Angel Bob, not an archangel, not the angel of the Lord, just Alex, the angel. So went out there and supernaturally, this is the all we have is the revelation we have here, but supernaturally slew one hundred and eighty five thousand 
of the frontline, top-tier uh, uh, military, uh, members of the military, of the greatest military in the world at that time. And when the people arose in Jerusalem in the morning, and they looked out, there were the corpses, just a sea of dead people, all of them dead. That's how sure God's promises are. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he departed. Not an arrow shot. Nobody was shooting the arrows. Sennacherib, he, he somehow spared in all of this. God said he would return back to Assyria, so he is spared for it. So he, he departed. He went away. He returned home, just like God said, and he remained at Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And it came to pass, this is about 20 years later, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nishrach, his God, that his sons uh, Adramelech and Shareezer struck him down with the sword. They assassinated him and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And then uh, Esheradon, his son, reigned in his place. And so just as God said he would die a violent death, so he died uh, a violent death. In that 20 years from the time that the 185,000 Syrian troops were killed until the death of uh, Sennacherib, he would mount five more great military campaigns in enlarging the uh, kingdom of Assyria. But never again did he attempt to attack Judah or Jerusalem, just as the Lord had said. Let's stand together if the worship team comes forward. That would be great. And we'll stop there uh, tonight. Very rich chapter. One of the richest chapters in, in the whole Bible. Beautiful picture of faith and prayer and the reward of faith. And God loves to do this and be this uh, to his people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do rule and reign over all. And we thank you, Lord, that our lives are in your hands, that we are on the right side of all of your promises in Christ Jesus. We thank you for Jesus tonight, Lord. We thank you so much for the fact that we are a different people in this world, not because we're better than any other human being, but because you opened up our eyes to our need for you and we have made you our God. And we thank you, Lord, that we're able to live a different life, that we live under different promises. As a result, we have a different confidence in life than others have in this world, Lord. And we give you praise tonight for the privilege of being able to be your children and to know you as our God and as our Heavenly Father. And we give you praise tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.